Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. Need to get Cassie to come and speak at the women's conference if we ever hold one to talk to all the wives about not murdering their husbands. It's a good message. We have to have you over for dinner again, Cass, so you can speak to Marnie about that. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. For those of you who don't know me, I think I know most people in the room, but for those of you who don't, uh, my name is Brett. Um, I work on staff here at Newspring. Um, And, yeah, just add my welcome to um, Cassie's. Glad to see that you are all here. Um, It's been a big weekend for this community Um, of all things social. We've had weddings and birthdays and breakfasts and all that sort of gear. So um, if you missed out on all of that, I apologise, but it was a good weekend anyway and I think we're all a bit stuffed. And so I had a good sleep this afternoon before I came back. So, Advent, who, who thinks it's too soon? Yeah? No? It's what? No. <laughs> yeah? Who, are you super prepared? Anyone who said, no, it's not. Are you super prepared and you're like, I've already bought all your presents and all that? You have? Good stuff. So, yeah. No, you're not a preparer, are you? Right. Oh, work in retail. It's way too early for Christmas carols. We were put. We put up our Christmas tree yesterday, and um, I had to skip all of the Mariah Carey songs <laughs> because it just needs to stop. She's like a virus. Um, cool. So we um, are going to approach. Um, this Advent season slightly differently this year. So the last few years we've done sort of thematic, um, like we've done um, joy and peace and hope. And I forgot the other one. Love. There you go. See, I forgot, I forgot about peace this morning and I forgot, yeah, it's, yeah, I didn't write them down. Um, and so, but what we are aiming to do um, this Advent season is to take some of the characters of, Um, the nativity narratives and sort of see what characteristics that the authors build into them and then what does then those characteristics and how they interplay with what they're talking about Jesus, what that tells us about Jesus more, hopefully, that we're able to look at Jesus with fresh eyes. And so I'm going to start this message this morning by asking you a question or this evening, asking you a question. It's been that day. Okay. If you were to be a character in the nativity scene, what character do you think represents you the most? It's rhetorical. You don't have to scream it out to me. Someone sort of said, I'm a donkey this morning. And it's like, well, maybe you are. Um, So, but are you one of the wise men? Who is rushing? It's going to be that sort of nice. <laughs> I think so. That's okay. Are you one of the wise men rushing 
to worship Jesus? Or are you potentially one of the shepherds declaring the good news of the Messiah's coming? Or are you potentially Simeon or Anna, someone who is waiting with anticipation for the Messiah to come? Or potentially or possibly, are you a chief priest or a scribe? Someone who recognises the signs of the Messiah's coming, but you're either too scared or too entrenched in your religion to join the wise men in their worship? Or are you maybe another character who we're going to talk about this morning? And a character that's a little uncomfortable to admit that some of us might have it in us. Maybe there's a little bit of Herod in us, that we are threatened by Jesus the way that he enters our lives and disrupts our power. So we're reading from Matthew chapter 2 this evening. I'm only going to read the first 12 verses. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Christ would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star that, had, that they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. The story goes on in chapter 2, um, where Jesus, sorry, where Joseph then is told in a dream to flee to Egypt because Herod is going to come and kill Jesus. So he flees. And then um, Herod obviously arrives or his henchmen arrive and they realise that he's been outwitted. And so he kills all of the kids under the age of two in Bethlehem. It's then uh, sometime after that where Joseph then hears again from God that he's, it's now safe to go back into Israel. So he does, but he doesn't go back to Bethlehem. He goes back to Nazareth. So the thing is, though, when we read the New Testament, it feels like there's a bit of a disconnect sometimes because it's almost the start of a new book. And we don't necessarily connect what they're talking about in the book of Matthew with what's happened before. 
So when we start to read the narrative of the nativity or whatever's going on in the start of the Gospels, we actually don't necessarily link it mentally or emotionally to anything of the Old Testament. The thing is that the story that Jesus or that the, the gospel writers are writing here is a story that began before that starry night in Bethlehem. It's a story that's been going on since the Garden of Eden. The story begins with the serpent and Eve. When human disobedience injected corruption into the cosmos and into every human heart. It's a story found throughout the pages of the Old Testament of Cain killing Abel, of Pharaoh and Moses, of God leading Samuel to anoint an obscure shepherd boy to be king, of God's chosen people, God's covenantal people consistently choosing to worship other idols over worship of Yahweh. What Matthew is describing here in this narrative is the clash of two kingdoms. It is the kingdom of this world and of Satan versus the kingdom of God. Now, Matthew is not describing here a nice, neat little scene that what we see on nativity cards where everyone is as calm as Hindu cows and it's all angelic and it's all going on. Whereas what Matthew is describing here is a war zone. That's what Jesus was born into. He was chased from his manger and into Egypt by a murderous king who sacrificed Bethlehem's infants for the sake of power. Now, I know that I gave you several options before. What character do you want to be? But Matthew here actually doesn't give us that many options. Matthew, in fact, only gives us two. Because there are only two kingdoms that you can choose from. But there can only be one king. So the two possible responses that Matthew gives us are this. Those who side, by side with Jesus by worshipping him and by, obedient, by and by being obedient to him and those who attempt to kill him. And they include Herod, all of Jerusalem, all of the chief priests and scribes and Herod's son. Now I can already potentially predict some uncomfortableness there of people going, hang on. The, the wise men were worshipping him, yes, but the chief priests and scribes, I mean, they sort of helped Herod, but they didn't try and kill Jesus. All of Jerusalem wasn't involved in that. There needs to be a third option. It can't be just simply we're either for or against it can't be that black and white, surely. But if you read the rest of the gospel, where does the rest of the persecution come from? For the rest of the gospel, the persecution comes exclusively from the religious leaders. And even when secular authorities are involved in that persecution, it is done 
at the instigation of the religious leaders. And Matthew chapter 2, verse 3, when he says, all of Jerusalem, this is inclusive language. The crowds who follow Jesus everywhere are the same crowds who ultimately rejected him and called for his crucifixion. So the wise men, they go to Jerusalem, which was the political centre of power in Israel. And they go to the king and say, hey, where's the real king? Can you imagine doing that to Buckingham Palace? I mean, she doesn't have, like, the power to kill people, I don't think, at least anymore, maybe on the sly. <laughs> She's a little feisty, that one, isn't she? And maybe, I don't know. But what is their response? It's one of distress. They are all disturbed. And the Jewish leaders know enough to tell the wise men, actually, he's not supposed to be here. He's off in Bethlehem. But they don't go. They remain where the political power is. And the rest of the gospel is that we read about a people who reject Jesus' kingship in favour of an alternate form of rule, even though that rule brutalises them and ultimately destroys them. So we have two kingdoms. And in this narrative, they are represented by Herod and by Jesus. So let's look. Oh. At how Matthew portrays each of them. So how does Matthew depict King Herod? Now, we need to fill in some historical context here to make sense of what Matthew is telling us. We're going to use my favourite word. We're going to use context. Context. So now, Herod's story is actually really interesting. Um, I didn't know half the things I learned about him in studying for this. But his story is filled with multiple levels of political maneuvering, uh, maneuvering and because his, his family was actually um, held, held favour with Caesar. So it was all the way up to the top of the Roman Empire. And all of it is extremely interesting, but ultimately irrelevant for what I'm saying tonight. Um, but what we do need to know, which will, is, is interesting in the context of this, is that Herod was actually Jewish. Um, he was an Arabic Jew. Um, so by like the Israelite Jews, he was pretty much considered not a Jew. In the world of Harry Potter, he was a bit of a mudblood. Um, but his father, um, so they were um, a, a set of um, Arabs who, uh, during the Maccabean Revolt, were actually forced to become Jewish by the Maccabeans in about 2nd century BC. Um, and when... Um, governor or whatever his title was, Pompey conquered um, Israel in about 63 BC, Herod's father sided with the Romans. And because of that, he was given Roman citizenship, which meant Herod had citizenship with Rome, and he was able to go to Rome and create a, a political base. So when Herod's father was murdered, um, Herod became king of Judea or Judah in about 37 BC. Sorry, yeah, BC. 
Now, Herod was known for a whole bunch of stuff because he was called Herod the Great. Most of it was architectural stuff. Okay. So um, he built fortresses, palaces, aqueducts, amphitheaters, and seaports. He built or embellished many foreign cities and towns, but his most grandiose creation was the remodeling and rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. The Western Wall, which we know as the Wailing Wall, Herod built that. So it took him about 10 years, apparently. But he was a suspicious and jealous man. And he destroyed everyone and anyone who either had power or who, was trying, who he thought was trying to take his power. He murdered his wife, his mother-in-law, his brother-in-law. Towards the end of his life, he murdered three of his sons. And he murdered numerous Pharisees and priests of the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling body. He was politically savvy and murderously ruthless. It's said of him that when he was um, dying, that he um, gave an order for the days before he was about to die, that he was actually, they wanted all of the Jewish leaders to be rounded up on trumped up charges and held. And then when he died, for them to all to be killed. Because he knew that no one would shed a tear for his death. So when he died, he wanted people to cry. Like, this is the sort of guy that we're dealing with here. That last order was actually not carried out. So Matthew presents Herod's kingship here as someone who is wielding power over his subjects for the sole purpose of keeping that power and increasing that power. And this manifested in acts of deception and violence. Now, Matthew presents this struggle on two levels. On the face of it, on the surface, Herod is powerful and in control. And Jesus is depicted as dependent and helpless. He's at the will of others. But as we read the narrative, we realise that something else is actually going on here. The wise men go to the king to find the actual king. And it is a child that they pay their homage to. Herod is then outwitted again by the wise men when they try or they went home another way. And then his will is thwarted, thwarted again when Joseph fleed to Egypt before his henchmen could kill Jesus. The one who was once so powerful has been thwarted and has failed. So on the flip side of that, how does Matthew depict Jesus? I asked this question this morning, and some people were honest with me, and everyone else lied. <laughs> Joking. Who, when you start to read the book of Matthew, and you see the genealogy of Jesus Christ, skips it and goes to the next section, because who cares about genealogy? One, two, yeah, a couple of, yep. And like I said this morning, like, who cares that Judah fathered Perez? Do you care? I don't care. No one knows. Like, who are those people? Like, so we skip it because our Western brains, it's so far removed from us that we actually go, okay, whatever, and we go, okay, tell us about Jesus. Yeah? That's fair enough. 
But we're actually going to start there this morning, or this evening, sorry, to get a better grasp of what um, Matthew's trying to say. So Matthew traces Jesus' genealogy from Abraham to David, from David to the Babylonian exile, and from the exile to Christ. Now, numerology in Israel was actually quite important. Numbers meant stuff. I think I did a class of it, maybe, in Bible college, but that was 10, 15 years ago. So <laughs> I don't really remember it. Um, but I do know this, that numbers are important, especially the number seven. And it signifies fullness and perfection. So when you read Matthew's genealogy, especially from verse 17, so it says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, from David to, until the exile in Babylon, 14 generations, and from the exile to Babylon until Christ, 14 generations. So there were three sets of 14 generations. Another way that you could do that was that there were six sets of seven. And so when we start to look at what Jesus is now ushering in, he's actually ushering in the seventh period, which is the period of perfection and the period of fullness. It also tells us something about Jesus in relation to David and the exile. Firstly, that Jesus is the Davidic king. That he possesses, well, that in Jesus, the promises made to David will be fulfilled. That the enemies of Israel will be destroyed. The political fortunes and religious ethos of Israel will be restored. And that he would institute an era of unending peace. Now, we know that when Jesus started preaching, that he consistently said to them, my kingdom that I'm ushering in is not the kingdom you're expecting. It's not the kingdom of this world. So what the Jewish nation was actually expecting of the Messiah, that you know the Romans would be ousted and then the Jewish would rule and all that sort of stuff, that never happened because they misunderstood what Jesus was about. But that's the promise that was laid on Jesus' shoulders through this prophecy. It also tells us that Jesus is the Messiah who brings restoration of Israel from exile. Jesus is God's agent who brings restoration to Israel's physical and spiritual exile. Now, back in the Babylonian days, the Israelites obviously were judged and they got sent to Babylon, as the Boniem tells, song tells us. And, but God made a way for them to come home. So they came home. They came back to the land. Land is extremely important for the Israelites. They go about rebuilding the temple. They rededicate the temple. They have a ceremony for it with the expectation that God's presence would then land back in the temple to tell them that their covenantal relationship with God had been restored. But they go through this entire process and what happens? Nothing. God doesn't come. So in many ways, if you are looking at the Jewish nation, they are a covenantal people without the presence of their covenantal God. 
they are spiritually still in exile. Jesus has, as the Messiah, is the one who brings about the restoration and the presence of God is returning. The hinges of the genealogy tell us something important. So how he starts and finishes. So Abraham, David, David, exile, exile, Christ. In Abraham, God chooses a people of promise. In David, the people are given a king of promise. The people are without their promised king in exile. And in Jesus, the promised kingship and people are restored. That's the economy that this genealogy is telling us. If we then expand that to the greater passage of Matthew, it's saying this about Jesus. That the time of God's final restoration has actually begun in Jesus the Messiah. That the one born in Bethlehem, the city of David, is the shepherd king. And that he will rescue his people from their exile. And as chapter 1 verse 21 tells us, will save his people from their sins. Another thing that Matthew does, that each step of Jesus' birth and infancy is grounded in the fulfilment of Scripture. The story is littered with Old Testament references that identify Jesus as either rehearsing a biblical pattern or else fulfilling prophetic promises. Chapter 1, verse 23, chapter 2, verse 6, chapter 2, verse 15, chapter 2, verse 18. I don't have the time to go into them, but they're all bold. And each of them, the several points of contact, are all to do with the exodus and exile traditions where Jesus' infancy reiterates a new exodus and the end of exile. That God is returning his own son from exile as he did for Israel. How are we doing? We okay? We're almost there. There's one more character that we need to talk about in this narrative before we can finish. And that character is God. Because the thing is, there's a theological argument, for lack of a better word, of um, a clockwork God, almost. And it's like God created everything, and he did what he did, and he almost like wound it up like a clock, and set it off running, and then off he went. And he just sort of left it to sort of wind down a bit. But the ramification of that is that God isn't present that God isn't engaged, that God isn't involved in our lives because God is this distant God. Just to let you know, I don't adhere to that theology at all. Because the coming of the Messiah, the King of the Jews, is not just another event in history. It's the supreme event in history. 
that was planned and prophesied about or by God for centuries before it happened. And God's not a passive onlooker in the events in Matthew. He's actively involved. He's a, or he's all of them. The divine birth of Jesus to the Virgin Mary, chapter 1, verse 18. Then God spoke through his angel to Joseph in a dream, chapter 1, verse 20. He warned the wise men not to return to Herod, chapter 2, verse 12. He sent Joseph and his family to Egypt to escape Herod's wrath, chapter 2, verse 13. And he then sent them to Galilee, chapter 2, verse 22. But God's active involvement in Jesus' ministry doesn't stop there. At Jesus' baptism, God declares Jesus' divine sonship in chapter 3, verse 17. The Holy Spirit then led Jesus into the wilderness to be tested by the devil, chapter 4, verse 1. He was then administered to by angels when it was over, in chapter 4, verse 11. Peter's confession of Jesus' divine sonship was a direct revelation from God, chapter 16, verse 17. Jesus is again affirmed as God's son at the transfiguration, chapter 7, verse 5, 17, verse 5. And in chapter 28, God raises Jesus from the dead. We do not serve a God who is passive and inactive in our lives. He is intimately involved. This is the kingdom that we serve. So what is our response? Almost done. Is our response like Herod? Are we threatened by Jesus? The way that he interrupts and disrupts our lives and our power? Or is our response like that of the wise men, recognising that Jesus is our king and that we worship him with our whole lives and our whole self? Timothy Keller wrote this. King Herod's reaction to Christ is, in this sense, a picture of us all. If you want to be king and someone else comes along saying he is king, then one of you has to give in. Only one person can sit on an absolute throne. It is a claim of absolute authority, a summons to unconditional loyalty, and it inevitably triggers deep resistance within the human heart. This dark episode of King Herod's violent lust for power points to our natural resistance to and even hatred of the claims of God on our lives. We create gods of our liking to mask our own hostility to the real God who reveals himself as our absolute king. The story of Matthew 2, end of quote. The story of Matthew 2 reminds us that we have Herod's in our own hearts. The ways in which we resist the way of Jesus in favour of our own pursuits. How we can quickly put trust in worldly powers instead of grounding our hope in the kingdom of God. How easy it is to marginalise the little people who seem to get in our way. We cannot be neutral about Jesus. This is a powerful reminder of that. We can either take up arms against him 
or we can bow down and worship in repentance and faith. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for your grace and mercy this evening. Heavenly Father, I pray that you stir your people. That we begin to take seriously the things that we say are important and the things that we say we give our lives to. Heavenly Father, I pray that this people, your people, stops remaining in the middle and that we join the wise men in running to your feet and worshipping you. Heavenly Father, it's scary giving up everything in order to worship someone that we're not really sure we trust or that we're not really sure is trustworthy with our loyalty. Heavenly Father, I pray for boldness in this community as we move forward in this Advent season that we begin to seek out your will in our lives, that we begin to seek out how do we put the idols in our lives down in order to walk in the light that you provide. Father, we're going to stuff up doing that. But I pray that you give us persistence and boldness and wisdom in order to maintain our pursuit of you just as you are pursuing us. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.